Let's welcome Rose with a with a clap. Back in about November, December, God spoke to Rose about sharing a testimony in an area uh, of her life, and this is this is the moment for her to share. This is deeply personal, and it will be personal to other people in the room. So we respect this moment, we respect the space, and we we're really excited to hear what you want to share. Thank you, Rose. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, so yeah. Um, in December, in church, I felt God saying, I really want you to share your testimony, um, which made me feel absolutely petrified because unlike my husband, I hate standing up in front of lots of people. Um, that's definitely his gift. But um, it's been a journey thinking about doing this, and I really felt like God say he'd give me the words this morning. So um, you saw my husband earlier standing up talking about spree. Um, I met Steve 17 years ago and fell for his scouse charms and we got married. <laughs> um, and was very much, you know, head over heels in love with him. And although I'd never thought about having children, really, when we got married, I desperately wanted to have his children. And so we decided to start trying for a family. And um, within a month of trying, I was pregnant with Isaac. Um, who's now 12, and had um, normal pregnancy, um, was coming up to nine months pregnant, was determined I was going to have a lovely natural birth, hired a birthing pool, which she has in our living room, which is heated, which I spent a lot of time watching telly in when I was massive. Um, had the idea that... Um, come to my due date, miraculously I was going to go into labour and have this amazing natural delivery with no drugs. That's what I thought was going to happen. So we get to due date, nothing's happening. Um, feeling quite concerned because I resembled a watermelon by this point. It's been a really hot summer and I was absolutely massive. Um, Ten days later, still no baby, getting really concerned about how I was going to get this massive baby out by this point. Um... 12 days overdue, called into hospital, it's time to induce me, okay. Uh, next day, we go in, Steve and I, for the induction, and was not the delivery I wanted to have at all. Um, lots of drugs, um, ended up on a drip, very painful, um, had to have an epidural. But Isaac came at half past two in the morning, um, healthy, so that was the main thing. I was utterly exhausted, felt like I'd gone through a car crash, didn't know what was going on. Um, had drunk absolutely loads and loads of water while I was um, labouring, but unfortunately wasn't catheterised after having Isaac. So about eight hours later, I started to get a feeling back because I had a massive epidural um, and had a distended bladder. It's really painful. So I spent a few days in hospital um, after having him, and then on the second day was discharged. So home with a new baby, not really knowing what to do, but having that euphoria and that sense of love for my new son, but not feeling physically very well, but assuming this is just what happens when you've had a baby. Um, two weeks later, I'm, st- I'm feeling really ill by this point. I'm 
go to the GP and I've got kidney infection, a bladder infection, um, I have to go to hospital. So I'm admitted to hospital, um, given IV antibiotics, four different courses, and I'm still feeling really ill. I was there for a week, lost about a stone. Then the doctors come in to the room in masks and say, we think you've got C. diff. Thankfully, I didn't, um, but I had a scan. I had retained placenta, so nasty infections had taken hold by this point. Um, have an evac, and then I'm discharged from hospital, still feeling really ill. So back home for a few days. Steve's desperately trying to look after me. Isaac's five weeks old by this point, and I'm still feeling really ill. Uh, go back to hospital and find that the antibiotics haven't worked. Um, and then amazingly, my community midwife comes to see me. And she chases up with the doctors about the original cultures they took two weeks before. Um, and I've not been given the right antibiotics. So I'm given the right antibiotics. And within 12 hours, I feel amazing. It's like the infections lifted somewhat in my body. So I go home the next day, desperate, desperate to get home. Desperate to be with Isaac, having been separated from him with all the hospital stays. So I'm home. And in the shower, two days later, um, my milk's come back in, so I'm flooded with hormones again, and I start to feel suicidal, which, having never had any mental health problems before, was very scary. Um, hit me like a freight train. And I just remember being in the shower, and for probably... The first time in my life, just calling to God with such desperation and honesty in that moment, I didn't know what was going on, just crying out to him to help me. And I felt like he literally carried me out of the shower, downstairs to talk to Steve, um, to tell him what was going on. And had um I spoke to um my GP, spent forty five minutes on the phone with him, went to see him, had another forty five minutes with him, which is obviously quite unusual to spend that long with your GP. And he was absolutely amazing. Um and with Steve and gave us both the sort of help and direction we needed to start dealing with it. Um I felt Every day with the depression, um, that the only way I got through it was prayer. Every time I prayed, when I felt overwhelmed, within an hour or so, I just felt God calming me down, carrying me through it, um, guiding me on where to go for help and working through people. So, um, I found a local support group and just felt God speaking through them, through all the help I had. And sort of within about six months, we were back on a, a pretty much even keel. Um, I was able to enjoy Isaac um, a lot more. And just, I mean, I was very lucky because I felt bonded to him. I loved him. And I know some women who have post depression don't have that. For me, it was more, I just felt incredibly anxious all the time. 
But I had made a decision I absolutely did not want to have any more children. Um, I didn't want to risk ever going through that or risk my mental health again. Um, I didn't have... So I'd made this decision. I told Steve, he was amazing, and just accepted that's where I was. I didn't have any periods after having Isaac. And this went on for about 18 months. Um, even though I couldn't breastfeed him because of all the antibiotics I'd had. Um, so this wasn't, wasn't quite right. So we referred to the gynecologist. Um, and his opinion was that through the infections and the EVAC, I probably had scarring to my womb. So I was unlikely to be able to have children if that was the case, any more children. Um, and they were going to do some investigation into that. So around this time, Steve booked me on to a retreat with our old church. Um, it was an American retreat. I wasn't too keen. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was very much um, that you're a precious jewel to God. And it wasn't quite my scene. And it also included periods of silence. And although I'm petrified of talking this to everyone, <laughs> on a one-to-one, I don't shut up. So <laughs> I wasn't great. So the first night, um, they sat and did a talk and then said, right, you need to sit in silence for 10 minutes. Um, and there was sort of funky lights going and it was dark and, you know, candles. And anyway, I wasn't very into it. <laughs> but I sat there and um, just had a vision. Um, and I felt God put his arms around me from behind and showed me a vision of a beach and I was running on it with, with children and he said to me that he loved me like I loved my son but I could feel that you know it, his love's perfect mine's not but his is perfect and that was amazing and um at that moment I realized that it was fear that was stopping me from thinking about having another child um of what happened I wrote a prayer to put in the prayer box for my peers to come back and put it in the prayer box and then the next morning my peers came back um, and I didn't go back to the gynecologist it was just I was healed so um, Steve and I then around that time moved to Cornwall moved to Falmouth for a while um, and I took a career break and I was still pretty adamant I didn't want to have more children but I didn't recognize that was coming from a place of fear. Um, I asked for prayer with one of the elders at um, our church in Cornwall um, just randomly at the end of a service and he prayed in tongues and then he said he saw me with a child at each side of me. So I thought long and hard about this and my feelings and then sat Steve down in our dining room, burst into tears and said, I want to do it again, um, but I'm really scared about what if I get ill again? What if it's worse this time? Um, what if I'm induced again? What if I, my body goes through all that again? And we decided to, he was amazing, been amazing through all of it and said he'd be there no matter what so we got pregnant with Eliza and I had a lovely healthy pregnancy 
Um, lots of prayer from my church around the birth because I desperately did not want to have to be induced and go through all that again. And um, I went 14 days overdue. <laughs> no, Eliza um, was really feeling quite annoyed with God at this point, <laughs> saying some angry prayers. Um, we went into Southmead um, ready to be induced and um, I was sat um, in the assessment unit and they just said you're going to have to be induced and this midwife made me cry and saying you can't wait any longer it's not happy for the baby and I said I don't want to put the baby's health at risk I'll be induced um, Steve went off to get my bag and my waters broke while I sat there and then Eliza was born two and a half hours later completely naturally and no no pain relief it was one of those amazing restorative annoying experiences people talk about it with Tom <laughs> Um, and yeah, so she came along and I was scared I was going to get post-nation depression and always waiting, was it going to happen? But no, it didn't happen. Um, it was just that having her was just a fulfillment of all those, all those things that had gone on before, just restored my faith in being, you know, what it was to be a mother and have a young baby. And I'd missed some of that with Isaac because I was so unwell. Um, but looking back through all of it, um, whenever I have doubts, and I have doubts about God, is he really there? You know, is this all make-believe? Do I have an imaginary friend? And then I look back at it and can see so clearly how God worked in my life then. And I literally could feel him like that footsteps passage little phrase um carrying me carrying me through all those difficult times and I wouldn't change any of it now because um of how much closer it brought me to him and how I saw him work in my life um and just how um it strengthened my marriage it's made me a much more compassionate person it's given me an understanding of mental health um I've had so much from it and most of all um, just the joy that I've had in becoming a mother and having had Eliza as well. So I just want to share that with you. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. That's absolutely incredible. That's incredible. And if anyone um, wants to talk or process through any aspects of that with Rose afterwards, I'm sure she'd be um, willing for that. One person's breakthroughs, all of our breakthroughs. I'm going to share um, testimony too around where we're at. We're a church that seeks God's first God's kingdom. We're looking at um, a series of who we are as a church and this is sort of tying it up. And the reason we wanted to be a bit more testimony focused today is a testimony is a life of the word made flesh, isn't it? It's an embodied life that lives out the reality of, of scriptures we see or we read. And if you want to know what makes Chris and I tick, some of you might have known us for a very long time and know this already. Some of you are getting to know us. It is this phrase this mantra this is our go-to this is our life verse and it's 
from Matthew 6:33, one of Jesus' most famous teachings. Seek first God's kingdom and everything will be provided for you. So if we put that that first. So if you go go back up to the one before, we're a church that seeks first God's kingdom. And for better or worse, probably what's in our DNA will be in this church's DNA, which is pretty scary, even on a good day. So I, I know myself, or I know, yeah. <laughs> but there is a way of life that Chris and I have contended for, which we'll touch on on some of the things that Rose as well brought to the table. I think the Holy Spirit will knit things together from her testimony and from this testimony, which will help explain some of who we are and how we operate. So Chris and I met at university probably about 20 years ago. And um, it's just it's decades, isn't it? It's decades. <laughs> all the older people are like, huh? and all the younger people are like, oh, weird. That's my age. <laughs> And I remember, so Chris asked me out, which is lovely. <laughs> it's got to start somewhere, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, and I felt that God had given me someone who was perfect emotionally, spiritually, physically, academically for me. But that, on a plate, but that, that's not enough, is it? For the kingdom, because the kingdom's greater than ourselves. So if that put, if that, that fit isn't part of where the kingdom's going, as beautiful as that is. We want the kingdom. And we've got this myth in our culture that there's one special person that will make us happy. There is only one special person that will make us happy, and his name is Jesus. So I kind of went to bed going, thank you, God, but I, I give him back to you because actually that's not enough. It has to be where your kingdom's coming. I have to know this is a calling that's bigger than ourselves because after two years, the dopamine runs out. It's the reality. We know that now. And I woke up the next day and I felt I'm saying, yeah, this is the kingdom. It's not just you two. Yes, it's you two. But there's a life call on you to partner together um, to bring in the kingdom so we heard of this church, Hope Chapel, it started, it was about a year or two old, and we felt God call us here. I came here, I was like, I breathe the fresh air of faith here, I'm here. And we made, we chose jobs and work around our calling here, which is where we felt for us the kingdom was coming. And then a few years into living here, we were offered a deposit to buy a flat from family within, with, to buy a flat locally. But our instinctive response was, don't, isn't necessarily right to own a house. Culturally, it's a big deal in this country, in this time, in this place. It's not necessarily kingdom, partly because we, we had visions to like start up fair trade factories for jeans in India and we just, you know, we were just globally minded, so it isn't necessarily the right thing to buy a house or buy a flat. So again, we processed it. We initially said no, actually, and we processed it. We actually know this is from God. He wants us to buy a flat here. So again, we're prioritizing where we feel God's kingdom's coming. Meanwhile, as I said, we found jobs around the calling to be here and be part of this community. 
and Chris had uh, found a role in financial services and it, it was going well. And then the associate pastor role came up here, which is really exciting. There was a, it was expanding, we needed an associate pastor and both Chris and I sensed in the same day for that, that, that verse that says, leave your nets and follow me. And for him to leave his job in financial services and apply for the job here as associate pastor, which is a drop in pay cut and a trajectory drop. But wouldn't, obviously wouldn't have it any other way. The kingdom is so much more exciting than numbers on a page. We're in our flat. We're contending for hosting, for community, for friendship. And, and we had this small kitchen and we didn't have a dishwasher. This is so detailed, but it's in the details. So we would host, we'd wash up, and um, just take ages to wash up afterwards. We're like, this is who we are. This is what we build. We're building community, and that's what it requires. And God said to me, steward what you have, and I'll give you more. And I knew he meant the kitchen, the washing up. I knew it. <laughs> anyway, we're expanding the family. This is a two-bedroom flat. We had two kids, and although now I realize overpopulation apparently is the biggest environmental problem ever, I was not in that zone maybe. I wasn't reading up much because I was in a bit of a fog, but we decided to have a child. Anyway, we needed somewhere, and we wanted to be within walking distance of the community. This is where we felt we'd been called. A friend of ours, Michelle, had bought a four-bedroom house really locally, and she'd actually travelled a lot with her work and hadn't really done much to it. But when she'd been buying it, the, the, they couldn't sell it because of the kitchen. So the people put in a new kitchen. Then they sold it to her at the same price that they were trying to sell it without the new kitchen. She bought it, travelled around a bit and then said, actually, I'm called to go to African Mercy. She's a doctor. She left everything. She took a massive wage cut and then had to earn her own funds, raise her own funds for five years on this this ship that that delivers um, medical care in West African nations and said to us, within that context, would you like to live in my house for a very generous non-commercial rate? And we, so we prayed in May, we need somewhere. And August, she said, she didn't, no one knew this. We prayed to God and she said, would you like to live in our house? So we had a, we were given a family home. Five years Oh, with a nice new kitchen. I forgot to say that. The day we moved in, we hosted. We're like, this is said, steward what you have, I'll give you more. Our children's schooling came up and we felt God say, the, the kingdom's coming here. So we chose our schooling according to that. Our children's schooling according to that. Michelle came back from abroad. She Remember, she was here. She was a consultant. She gave up everything for five years. She earned her own wages. She goes back to London, walks into a consultant role at Great Ormond Street Hospital. And her colleagues saw that trajectory, which she wouldn't have been able to take and no one else took. She was able to... She said to us, actually, I want to sell the house because I, I think I'm going to stick there in London for all I want to buy. So we said, 
This is our mantra. We seek first God's kingdom and everything's provided for us. God, we, we're, that's fine, but we're here. We're in walking distance of this community. We're bought in. Uh, our children are at the school. Where this is, these are our people. Hope Chapel is our people. And so we can live, you can go back to our flat. We still had the flat. People, you know, it's fine. But we're not leaving this community because this is where we're at. And then God promised Chris that it was okay. God had got it sorted. And then one day someone phoned up from my family and released £200,000 so we could sell our flat and buy the house. I know this. There was a pot of money sitting for 10 years. It wasn't for me, humanly, but the timing when it needed it, God released that through the person who gave it to me, gave it to us. Because he's, we're see, this is where the kingdom's coming and we needed that money. Some of you have heard that bit. There's another bit on top which I'm going to share, but those who are, have children need to pick them up. <laughs> so I'll quickly share this. I'll carry on, but it, we need to pick up children. We did all the maths. We felt God say, this is the house, the house we're in. And we did all the maths and we we're £100,000 short. In the past, I would have been in a situation like that and thought, oh, this is complete humiliation, shame, we got it wrong. God isn't good, he isn't kind, he doesn't provide. But because my mindset about the goodness and kindness of God has changed so much, because I understand that when we seek first God's kingdom, he provides, and I knew he was saying, this is your house. I felt actually... The disciples in the boat going across the storm to the other side. There are two kinds of disciples. Sorry, there are two kinds of people. There were disciples who were panicking, rightly so, that they were going to drown. And that was an accurate human assessment of the storm they were in. They were fishermen and they knew they were going to drown. But Jesus was asleep in the boat. How I used to be was like the disciples panicking, going to Jesus or anyone who represented him in my life, clinging to them, saying, can you help me. But but I've changed now to take the position that now we're in Christ, we stand up, we rebuke the storm. So I just said to the financial storm, to be still in the name of Jesus. This is our house. You are our provider. You'd never ever humiliate or expose your children. You always cover us. You're very, very good. There's kingdom work for us to do on the other side. And within 24 hours, we were sitting on the same sofa. Someone else phoned up from Chris's side of the family and had given £100,000, which is exactly what we needed. Now, some people, those numbers are small. You deal in very big numbers in your workplace, in your home. Some people, they're normal. That's what buying and selling a house looks like. Some people, those, those numbers are very big, especially if we deal in the realms of global injustice. The issue isn't the numbers. The issue is the principle. When we seek first God's kingdom, he gives us everything we need 
to do what we need to do to be in the place that we need to be in. So I'm going to read out the passage now. If we can go to the next one. Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Why do you worry about clothes? Every single item of clothing in my fam- in, in, in my wardrobe, and Becky's in this as well, has a story behind it. God provides in the small detail, and he provides in the big picture. Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor is dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. So don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. By pagans, it's the Greco-Roman culture. It's an orphan spirit where we don't know we're looked after and we have to fight for our own protection, provision and identity. But this is a covenantal statement. For seek, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And in other words, as a, a covenant was an extremely serious treaty between two parties in the ancient Near East. The Jewish, Jewish audience of this, Matthew speaking to a Jewish readership, would have understood that as covenantal language. If you prioritize my good governance, I will prioritize you. In fact, it's, it's not an optional extra. It's not for the religious or the devout. It's a non-negotiable invitation to how humanity is designed to live. Because at the end of Matthew, he says, go into all the nations, all the ethnic groups, and tell them what I've told you. This is how we're designed to live, not as orphans anymore, but it's reorientating our lives around his good governance and seeing his abundant provision. We don't need to run around like headless chickens anymore out of anxiety. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So... What I want us to do is, if we go on a couple, so I've got a, I was thinking about what are the three main things we orientate our lives around, and I came up with the words relationally, geographically, vocationally, and then I remember Chris Vallotton just says this, it's much simpler, people, place, destiny, I was like, yeah, it's just like one or two syllables, much better. Um, he, he's brilliant and this is exactly how it works you find your people then you find your place and out of that you find your destiny we often want to know what we're supposed to do but he always operates out of community in a location then we find out what we're doing we, we, we connect with people first in a place and then our good works of faith follow and it's exactly what we're Chris and I are discovering all the time So don't be ever deceived to think there are some people who are worshippers and some people who are not. Don't hear when someone says to you, I'm a Muslim or I'm a Christian or I'm an atheist. Don't, not don't believe a word of it, but we don't, what people believe is what they orientate around. That's where, how you know someone really believes what they, what value system they really have. So how do we know every body you come across is a temple? They're a walking temple in front of you. I'm a temple. 
And the great gift and privilege for humanity is we can now be temples of the Holy Spirit again, which is what we were designed to be in Eden. Under God's kingdom, reigning with him, all Jesus is doing is reinaugurating that new true form of humanity again, that we can recover his good governance and be host his presence again. So what I want us to do is just deconstruct some places we might be orientating our lives. So if we go to the next one in our groups around the table, these are, these are kind of helpful questions on what the Bible calls the idols of our heart. Maybe contemporary culture might call our addictions or our comfort zone. Or it may be that, that we're orientated around him and his kingdom in these areas. But what I do with questions like this is I tend to sensitize myself to the Holy Spirit and say, what are you touching on? What phrase, what word is for me today? Because this shows what we're seeking first. Seek first God's kingdom, but this shows what we're seeking first. Who or what do we assign worth to? Who or what are we willing to look foolish for? Who or what do we pay a price for? Who or what do we organize our time around? Who or what preoccupies our thoughts? Who or what do we go to to find love, joy and peace? Who or what triggers hopelessness or despair? Because those are the things that will be our kingdom. That's what we're worshipping. That. Ultimately, over time, if someone orientates around Jesus, there may come a time where they confess their lips they're a Christian and it aligns. But that's, that's the reality, because eventually out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. So someone can say they believe something, but if they talk a lot about money, it's probably the thing they've aligned around. Probably where they find their protection, provision, and identity. What people actually talk about a lot when, when they're not concentrating often shows what they really believe. But these are the things... So everyone's a worshipper, and what God's inviting us into today is to prioritise him. So this is our DNA at Hope. So it will be Hope's DNA as well. We're a people here that seek first God's kingdom and see everything provided. And we have fresh testimony of this in our own lives all the time. But I particularly want to highlight something that's just happened for Hope, and then maybe we can process with each other some of these questions. As a community, we decided to appoint a youth pastor and we didn't have the funds to do it. However, we felt God say that's where his kingdom's coming, to invest in this beautiful next generation. So we, we, as a membership, we voted, yes, we're going to appoint someone. And then we've just discovered that for two and a half days a week, for three day, for three years, we've received full external funding to support that role. So the money has followed the vision. That's the way our life works. That's the way Hope Life works. We are a church. If we go to the next one. We seek first his kingdom. And we know that everything in abundance is provided for us. That's the right way around. So I'm going to pray now. We'll go back to those questions. And if you'd like to, you can process some of those questions together with friends, with people here, maybe on your own or with people who aren't here today, but people you walk with. If we go back to that last one. 
Lord, I thank you that, um, I thank you for Rose's story, how you, you cover, you heal, you protect. I thank you for Jane's prophetic word that in the Father's house we have everything we need. There is a, an abundance, there's a fullness. And there's just so much battle to get in there. Even the older son was in the field and he wasn't in there. And the younger son didn't see it and he went and tried to find it elsewhere. But there is only one place of provision, protection and identity. And that's in intimacy with you. So we call into the light now. Lies we're believing that hinder us from that full and deep connection with you. Ways we can reorientate our lives around people, place and destiny that are about where your kingdom's coming. May we be a people that are marked by this verse, that we seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and we know absolutely everything we need in abundance is provided for us. In the name of Jesus, amen.